We're continuing working our way through 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the believers in Corinth. And today we're in chapter 3. So if you've got your Bible handy with you there, turn to chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the first nine verses. We're going to see Paul's stern words to the people there. But in order to let you know what I struggle with in trying to present something to you of this nature, you need to know that I'm just one hungry beggar pointing the way where there is bread to other hungry beggars. I'm just a sinner who's been forgiven, somebody who's received God's grace poured out even though I didn't deserve it, and I still struggle with the stuff that Paul's talking about today. In fact, I suspect that almost all of us struggle with the kind of envy and a root of bitterness that can start trying to plant a seed that wants to grow, that wants to become the boss of us in our lives, as he is telling these believers in Corinth about today. So envy is at the root of a lot of things. We see that there's supposed to be no favoritism in following different leaders in the church, but Paul really starts to get behind what is behind that divisive spirit, and that's what we're going to look at specifically. Envy. Envy is at the root of a lot. It lurks deep within. And uh, it could be an outgrowth of pride. You can think, well, I deserve more. That person has more, and I deserve what that person has. And so I'm envious. I'm jealous. Or it can be a symptom of misplaced desire to satisfy. Man, if I only had what that person has, then I'd be happy. Envy can be an outgrowth of the comparison game. My idea is just as good as that idea, probably better. How come everybody accepted his idea and shunned my idea? That's not fair. Can you see how envy can lurk under the surface and lead us to dangerous conclusions and behaviors? When I start comparing myself with others, when I'm jealous of another person's power or prestige or possession, or position, I will not develop the kind of love and peace or joy that reflects the Holy Spirit and points people to the source of bread, points people to God. So here's a test to see if you have envy or not. When somebody else has more power than you do, or more of anything, and you're just kind of waiting for them to fall, and they do, and you find yourself exulting in that, and you're going, yes! that's probably a pretty good indication that you've got it. <laughs> and I hate to admit that. I catch myself doing that. I catch myself looking on television at somebody that I think, man, they deserve justice. But I get a little bit too exultant when they fail. I catch myself wanting them to suffer. <laughs> and that's dangerous because as I start to feel that that wants to become the boss of me, that wants to grow big inside of me until it takes over, that's an awful thing. And envy encompasses a lot of those feelings because it can be bitterness. It can be a desire for vengeance. All of that can grow out of the root of envy that's at the bottom of all this. And that's why I think Paul took it so seriously in this letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Well, good sportsmanship is probably a good indicator of whether or not we're taking control of that or allowing the Holy Spirit to control that in us, or if we're letting that envy rise to the surface. 
I've seen some really good winners in my time. Uh, even though they had played well and they won well, they were very gracious in congratulating the opposite team. And they would say, well done. That was a hard fought game. I appreciate that. Thanks a lot. I mean, that's classy, isn't it? Don't you love seeing classy winners? It's because they step into a no gloat zone. That's one good indication that somebody is taking control of envy rather than letting it come up. Because if they start gloating, rubbing salt in the wounds, that's not a very good comparison. That's not something that we want to see coming forward in our character. I think the golden rule definitely applies in that situation. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Do you really enjoy it when somebody rubs salt in your wounds? If they win and then they taunt you for having won, it doesn't feel great, does it? And that's why I think it's good for us to start seeing ourselves in real everyday situations and being able to be evaluative enough to say, do I have that root in my own life? And is it trying to grow bigger? Is it trying to become the boss of me? Like Audrey too, that man-eating Venus flytrap-like plant in Little Shop of Horrors. Feed me, Seymour. There was that flower that just wanted more and more human blood and Seymour kept trying to give a little bit of his own until that wasn't enough. It just wants to own you. It wants to consume you. And I think that's sort of a, an expression that was seen in a humorous way of what happens really when envy starts to become the boss of us. And Paul knew that. When envy becomes the boss of you, you start competing with people who don't even know there's a competition going on. And I find that that's really destructive. Envy-based competition fuels arguments, enlists allies, and develops core values for your team until division results. And it grows and grows until finally it's just win at all costs. And I think all of us have seen what can happen when there is a win at all cost attitude. It's very costly. And a lot of innocent people get hurt when that becomes what drives people. Paul addresses this, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 9. Let me read that for you. If you have it, you can certainly follow along to make sure that I'm getting it right. I'm reading from the NIV, starting with verse 1, chapter 3, 1 Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans or people who are not led by the Spirit? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, oh, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters it is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, 
and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Paul uses three analogies in this chapter. We're only going to cover the first two because he uses two analogies in verses one through nine. Next week, we're going to start looking at that third analogy of being a builder. But at first, he starts using that analogy as a parent, as some people in spiritual leadership start to feel that there is a need to become a parent at times. And it was definitely one of those I have to be like a parent moments in the Corinthian church. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, says Paul, but as people who are still worldly, for you were not yet ready for it, and you're still not. I gave you milk. Doesn't that sound like a parent? He's saying, you're baby believers. You're not mature enough for the deep stuff yet. So we can see that Paul is really equating their lack of maturity as being the need for more rudimentary, fundamental, basic milk-level teaching as he was trying to give them. Paul's word to the Colossians. He had said something in one of his other letters that I think really relates to what he's talking about in Corinthians. His purpose, he had clearly stated, was to proclaim Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, that gospel, which was of first importance to him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature. Some translations use the word perfect but that really more fully is comprehended in English as mature, fully mature in Christ. You're going to be growing up into Christ as the Spirit transforms you by the renewing of your mind. Those were all Paul's concepts. He had this in mind that we start out as a baby Christian, and then the more that the Spirit starts to renew us through His Word, we start to become more and more like Christ, and so we become more and more spiritually mature. And he's saying, that's my aim. I want to make sure that you're fully mature in Christ one day so you can stand before him shameless, knowing that it's because of Christ in your life that you are who you are and that you've arrived where you have simply by his grace, not because of any effort on your own. He says, but to the Corinthian believers, yeah, you're not there yet. <laughs> you're still not ready. The jealousy and quarreling, which Paul talks about, was evidence that they were being controlled by their sinful nature. He says, isn't that evidence that you're acting like mere humans? You're being controlled by your old nature, your sinful nature, not by the Spirit of God. And he knew that envy was at the root of that. He saw favoritism caused by envy. Somebody who would see somebody else who was a good leader or perceived as the most powerful leader, and they would start to align themselves with that leader. People do it all the time. There's jealousy, another word for envy, and quarreling, he says. Comparison is the thief of joy, said Theodore Roosevelt, and Paul knew that. He knew that as long as they were bickering and really just trying to vie for leadership and power, it was stealing the joy that they needed to have in Christ Jesus and the love that they needed to have for one another. When envy is the boss, when you're controlled by your sinful nature, aren't you living like people of the world, Paul says? Well, he also starts to show that he needs to shift their focus. They needed to have a shift of focus because by focusing on unity among the saints, it helps eliminate envy and pushes it back down where it needs to be. 
unity is the key for eliminating envy. Envious people are power-hungry people. You know what envious people argue over? Things that are not the most important. <laughs> Let me read to you this quote from a guy. He's with the Lord now, but uh, he used to do a lot of work with youth, and he's written a great deal while he was alive. Mike Iaconelli. Mike says, petty people are ugly people. They're people who have lost their vision. They're people who have turned their eyes away from what matters most and have focused instead on what doesn't matter. The result is that the rest of us are immobilized by their obsession with the insignificant. How true. <laughs> Paul knew that. He knew that petty people are divisive and destructive. When somebody argues over every little minutia, every little thing, making mountains out of anthills, they're stuck in a quicksand of pettiness and it disrupts everybody else around them because it sucks the life out of what could be forward momentum and creative energy and productivity. It just bogs everybody down. Pettiness is a symptom of what Paul is dealing with in his letter to these people in Corinth, these baby believers. He knows that arguments over things that are insignificant can drain us of our energy so that we can't expend that energy on the most important things that we should be about. Should we study and debate deep things of doctrine? Absolutely. Yes, we should. We shouldn't just remain surface level but we also should make sure that we're balanced in how we do that so that we have an ultimate aim that all those studies should lead toward becoming fully mature in Christ, not just becoming right as somebody else is wrong. Later, Paul talked about that which was of first importance. We're going to get to that quite a bit later in 1 Corinthians. That's way, way ahead of us here in chapter 15 but he knew what was of first importance. I think that as Paul starts to lay out for us all of the different errors that he was seeing in the Corinthian church, he needs to keep circling back around to this main point that you need to be reminded what the real vision is. What is our true vision? It's the gospel. That should drive everything about who we are as a people, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And he really drives that home in 1 Corinthians 15. Statements of faith are human ways of trying to distill the most important things so that we have access to them briefly. We have a statement of faith, and it's a real distilled version of that on our website. We want people to be able to see who we're about and what we're about, and we dare not stray from that statement of faith. We need to make sure that we're staying true to the main things that drive us, and all of those things should grow out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When one says, I follow Paul, and another, well, I follow Apollos. Are you not being mere human beings? Are you not being led by the spirit of divisiveness rather than by the spirit of a holy God? What, after all, is Apollos, he asks, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. This is where Paul starts to shift his analogy from being a parent, talking to those baby Christians, to becoming a farmer and saying that some of us water and others sow, but it's God who makes it all grow. It rhymes pretty well. We should write that down. It'd be a good song. 
<laughs> he says, I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. Bill White, a fellow preacher, lives out in Paramount, California, shared this story. I'm going to share it with you because I think it's a really good illustration of what happens when we're trying to give credit where credit is really due instead of trying to just take credit for ourselves, which is what envy does. He said, my cousin Johnny took his family to a pool party in an August at a relative's house outside of LA. At one point, the guests were all taking a break from the pool and they were milling about in the house, eating, talking. No one noticed when young Jack, age five, and his sister Blair, age two, had wandered off. Jack and Blair walked down several terraces to the pool, and as it turns out, the gate to the pool had been left open. Jack had not been in the pool yet, so he still had his clothes on. Blair, however, was in her new pink bathing suit. As Jack played with a long-handled pool net, Blair tested the water. She thought, hey, this feels good. It's cool. So she climbed over the edge of the pool and stood on the first step. Then she climbed down to the second step. The water was now up to the middle of her little chest. And then Blair took the next step. Bloop. And the water went over her head. No one was there. No one saw her go under except Jack. Jack tossed aside the pool net he was playing with, screamed out Blair's name at the tops of his lungs, and dove in after her. My cousin Johnny heard the scream, raced to the pool, and saw Jack under the water, pushing his sister to the surface. Johnny dove in and pulled them both to safety. Now, on the first day of school after that summer, Jack's teacher asked the class to draw something from their summer vacation and tell the story behind the picture. Jack drew a picture of himself and Blair at the pool. Here's the story, word for word, that he told his mother to write down for the drawing. When I was cleaning the pool, my sister started to go into the water without her floaties. When she got on the deep step, she started to drown. I jumped into the pool. My dad jumped into the pool too. We both got her. We took her out of the water and she was okay. And we all know that self-denial often paves the way for God to do something spectacular. And little Jack's example reminds us that the spectacular had unfolded. But once it does, once that spectacular has revealed itself, more self-denial is needed. As Jack dictated his picture's caption to his mother, he took a moment to give press to his selfless act of jumping in the pool to save his little sister, but he was just as quick to point out the fact that his father had jumped in too. We both got her. In a world that often practices self-denial only to be afforded the opportunity to puff up its chest, it's hard to tell which was the most selfless of Jack's actions. Diving into the pool to save his sister or making sure that the picture's caption gave credit where credit was due. Paul says, 
It doesn't matter who gets the credit. It's God who does the work. It's God who saves us, keeps us from drowning in our sin. It's God who gives the growth when we're disciples and we're maturing in the faith. Everybody else is just a part of that process, but we don't care who gets the credit. We point all the credit upward to him. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose, and both will be rewarded for their hard work. For we, Paul and Apollos, are both God's workers, and you are God's field. So we're all going to be rewarded. Let's just keep reflecting everything to God. Let me make this personal for us. This is something that I've had to do as I've studied for this message, because as I've told you, I struggle with envy that wants to become the boss of me, with bitterness, with a desire for revenge when things don't go my way or when I feel unjustly treated. So we have to recognize envy in our own heart. And I think one of the tests for that is by asking, do I really want something bad to happen to that other person? Do I really want them to be taken down a notch and do I revel in it when they fall? If so, yeah, that's a recognition that I need to be cautious because envy would love to become the boss of me. And then you need to ask, what am I really upset about? I don't know if I'm the only one or if you have those imaginary conversations with people that you're upset with, even sometimes if they don't even know you're upset with them. Those conversations in my experience usually happen when I should be sleeping and it's 2 a.m. and I'm still having the same conversation, except in my imaginary vision of what's happening in those conversations. Very often, there's a crowd of people around and they're listening with bated breath to all of my wonderful words because they're just so eloquent and I'm eviscerating the other person in the way that I'm just cutting them to ribbons with my rhetoric and I put them to shame until they're speechless and then I just drop the mic, boom, and everybody breaks into cheering. Yeah. And then I think, oh, wait. Yeah, what am I really upset about? Uh, this is not really taking me anywhere. And then I wake up and I go sit in silence for a while. And I think, what am I trying to accomplish? And what am I really angry about? And usually what I'm really angry about is something driven by envy. Somebody else's idea is better than mine, and I don't want to admit it. Or maybe they've just improved on my idea and taken it to the next level. Maybe somebody has gotten a promotion, and I wish I had that promotion. Maybe I see that somebody has a skill that I don't possess, and they can do something that makes it look so easy, and I can't do that. Whatever the situation is, what am I really upset about? Well, usually it's pride and envy that's at the root of why I'm going through this terrible scenario in my mind. And then we can take King Solomon's advice. King Solomon, pretty wise guy, made some mistakes in his life, but he left us a lot of wisdom in scripture too. He gives us a word picture to help us deal with envy when we realize that our old nature, that sinful nature, is trying to pop up and grab a hold of us and become the boss of us and create damage in our relationships and in our witness to other people. When we're tempted to kind of join into that mob mentality and get on the bandwagon and be angry with other people about whatever we think we need to be angry about. Here's some things that we need to remember from King Solomon. He says in Ecclesiastes, I saw that all this toil and achievement, and he had achieved a lot, but he said, 
all that toil and achievement, usually which, I'm putting in parentheses here, usually which is driven by envy. And I think that's in context with what he's been telling us in Ecclesiastes. It's all born from envy because we're trying to compete with somebody else. All this achievement that spring, it springs from another person's envy of one another. We're competing with all these other people. And this too is meaningless. That's a guy who had achieved so much. And he says, all this achievement, this too is meaningless. If we're trying to make ourselves feel validated by comparing ourselves with anybody else, it's meaningless. Now, here's something that we can remember. We don't need to compare ourselves to anybody else. We don't need to compete with other people. We need to repeat this phrase. This too is a chasing after the wind. Wherever you are, say it out loud after I do. Repeat after me. This too is a chasing after the wind. Say it again one more time. This too is a chasing after the wind. Can you catch the wind? Of course not. You can try, you can chase right after it, but there's no finish line. And that is Solomon's point. It's like a chasing after the wind. When you try to compete, it's never ending. There's always another er involved. I heard this from another pastor. There's always another er. There's somebody that's smarter or better or has something that's bigger or stronger. Whatever that er is, that's what you're trying to compete with. And there's no end in chasing after the wind. So just remind yourself, this too is chasing after the wind. And I don't want to do that. Can you catch the wind? Of course not. How do you keep a wave upon the sand? How do you hold a moonbeam in your hand? Oh, no, wait a minute. Those last two are from The Sound of Music. It's similar, though, to Ecclesiastes. It's the same idea. These things are impossible. They're poetic ways of expressing things that are an impossibility. How do you solve a problem like Maria? You can't. You can't do any of those things, and you can't chase after and catch the wind. And we need to remind ourselves of that when we get into these imaginary conversations that are sucking the life out of us and stealing our joy because we realize that it's envy that's at the root of all that. It's fruitless, it's exhausting, it's distracting, it's destructive. It drains my energy to keep me from being productive in the areas that really matter. And Solomon accomplished a great deal in his lifetime. So he's not saying, fold your hands and do nothing. He's saying, if you want to be really productive, stop being unproductive because of envy. Get rid of these things that suck the life out of your productivity, and instead focus on that which is the most important and lighten up and quit trying to compare yourself. Don't worry who gets the credit. Worry about pressing on together with other people and trust that it's God who gets the ultimate credit for any good things that happen anyway. Don't try to build yourself up. It's just meaningless. Better one handful with tranquility, he says, than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Simply put, less is more when it comes to contentment. And Paul is trying to get this across to the people in Corinth. You need to be less worried about comparing yourselves or being on the winning team or aligning yourself with the most important leader and just learn to be content. Lock arms with other believers. Use what God has given you because you're all gifted differently. We're going to see that coming up further in this uh, study too. And just use what God gave you. It's probably not going to be the same as somebody else. That's a good thing. 
We need each other because we are different. God made us different for a reason. You're unique. Use that uniqueness. Give him what you've got to work with because he gave it to you in the first place. Don't compete with one another. Don't compare yourself with one another. Just love one another. Just love one another. That's where unity starts to really unite us and bring us together around the gospel message, around that reach vision. We've captured it in the term reach, recognize everyone and communicate hope because we know that we're reaching as Christ reached to us and we're becoming incarnational by getting into other people's worlds so that we can show them how much God cares about them, we care about them, and that the true source of hope is Christ. Jesus Christ is the source of hope and we wanna communicate that with as many people as possible. So love one another, let's love one another as we do that and quit trying to compete. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, that's not an option. That is mission critical. We need to love one another and that takes work. And it takes trying to evaluate when we're having those imaginary conversations. It takes prayer, it takes confession. If you've had those conversations, it takes allowing the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to yourself about yourself. And then confessing that and saying, God, I'm so sorry. My pride was coming to the surface again. I feel like that feed me Seymour was coming to the surface and it was trying to be the boss of me. And I need to get rid of that envy. Forgive me for that. Help me to love other people, accept the fact that I'm not gonna be the same as everybody else and that's okay. And let me lock arms with my fellow believers and stay true to the gospel and to keep furthering your mission for us, because we want to share hope with as many people as we can. Let me finish by taking this right down into your own life. Thinking about envy and thinking about those times when you've just been really distraught and there's been some anxious, sleepless nights. Could that be because envy has started to creep up and is trying to become the boss of you? maybe even in one specific relationship. Maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's an in-law. Is there one time when you can look back recently and think, yeah, I've had one of those imaginary conversations and I know who it was about. Then let me just encourage you right now to give that to the Lord and just hand it to him as a gift and say, God, take this away from me. Throw it wherever you need to throw it into the deepest ocean, forgive me for comparing myself and being envious. Help me to learn to love that person, to accept what I can accept from them, to be responsible for my reaction to them, and to keep trying to share hope every chance I get. Let's pray together. Father, knowing how easy it is for envy to become disruptive in my own life, I can only suspect that probably there are a lot of other people who struggle with this as well. Probably that's why you inspired Paul to write to Corinth, because he knew how important it was. And we know that it's important to you. And so I ask that right now, in all of our hearts, we would open ourselves to that wonderful illumination of your Holy Spirit, who can see where nobody else can see. You can see right all the way down into our souls. Reveal to us if we need to kick that envy out and to aim for love resulting in unity 
as together we lock arms and keep furthering the gospel because that is of first importance. And these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.